Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast explores cultural landscapes around the world to build a vital oral history of contemporary art and culture. Today we head to Tampa, a coastal city in Florida that may be best known for its cigar-making history and vulnerability to rising sea levels. During a week-long residency, we discover a thriving creative scene with new and established studios, dynamic DIY galleries, avant-garde festivals, and networked art hubs. Until the 1940s, streetcar lines crisscrossed this city. In the 1950s, Federally funded urban renewal projects brought an interstate highway that broke up residential neighborhoods, wiped out the black business district, and displaced communities. Tampa Bay became a sprawling metroplex, dependent on cars. Today, the city is undergoing an urban facelift, intent on luring creative professionals with pedestrian-friendly, affordable, green, live workspaces. For now, a car is still quite essential. Local artist Libby Ponce, whose family came to the U.S. from Ecuador, is my city guide and driver. Majoring in art and philosophy at the University of South Florida, Ponce is a neighbor and supporter of Tempest Projects. our art mobile (laughs) for the week and with my chauffeur chauffeurs Libby Ponce we are on the road all right this is the best way to get there just so I don't um head west on East Hanna Avenue toward Camp Redrive all right where did you want me to go? That way, and then onto 24th. Do we pass any cars already? I think it's that way. Evidence of dependence on the car culture is the fact that I could not have had this experience of Tampa without Libby and her car. Yeah, having a car is pretty essential. The car culture here too is like pretty impressive. Um, I think you gotta go to like the right spots, but people like really deck out their cars and they they look kind of beautiful. In 1,000 feet at the traffic circle, take the third exit onto North. Our first stop is Tempest Projects, an alternative space in a storefront on Florida Avenue in South Seminole Heights. A nonprofit organization operates the space. Tempest originates, organizes, and hosts exhibitions, events, and special projects to engage the Tampa Bay community through the visual arts. This initiative has energized the district's emergence as a unique and creative destination. Inside the Tempest Project space, we meet with British-born artist Wendy Babcox to talk about her passion for lens-based media. She came to Tampa to study art and never left. 
She now teaches at USF. When we sit down to talk, we're surrounded by Wendy's solo exhibition of photographs titled Anthem, and the beat goes on. I discovered a Ziploc bag that was in my studio with these Polaroids that I had made 20 years ago. And they were very close-up shots of my mouth while I'm laughing. Laughing, smiling, but primarily laughing. And I had made them at a moment where I really wanted to sort of manifest a different kind of reality for myself. They're full frame. All you see is my mouth, sometimes wide, wide open, as if I am laughing really, really loud. But in all cases, it sort of fills the square format frame. There was something about them that seemed to tie in really well with this moment in time. What year was that you took those? That would have been 1998. Prior to the selfie movement. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I've heard you say that you like thinking of women doing things they're not supposed to be doing. Yeah. For me, the pictures engage with this particular moment. As we began the year, an incredible number of women made their way into Congress there was a shift in the world or, or in our world in, in the U.S. As we entered 2019, I felt a, a sort of joyfulness, which I haven't felt for a while. <laughs> and so much of that is having a voice, which I think is another thing about the mouths being open. There's something mischievous about them. Wendy Babcox shares the story of Kunsthaus, the feminist-inspired exhibition and performance space next to Tempus. A drum club known as Noisy Women meets there every week. I have this ongoing interest, I think, in my work. And the drumming is this extension of that. Women being loud, being naughty, being a little wild and untamed, and we host and curate projects by women artists, women-identifying artists. I was just next door for a moment, and I saw a drum kit there. Yeah. Beautiful drum kit. Is that yours? It is, yes. It really began just as a way to be loud and be noisy. For me personally, I wanted to learn drums ever since I was a little kid. But I think after the election in 2016, I felt like I needed an outlet. I just needed something. We began curating exhibitions. And then I would say sometime after November 2016, I had an idea to, I just felt like I wanted to have women's drumming be in residence in a way in the space and so once a week we hold lessons we began just learning the basics of stick technique it sort of all manifested into a performance on bucket drums After our first performance, we decided we wanted to move much more into the drum kit. Well, frankly, I'm 55, 
And I think it's hilarious to be 55 playing drums. I just think I'm not supposed to do that. So I want to even more. <laughs> to the University of South Florida to meet Margaret Miller, a longtime contributor to Tampa's art scene. In 1965, Miller came to the university to complete her undergraduate studies. Returning after graduate school, she worked her way up from slide librarian to full professor to curator and museum director, now director of the Institute for Research in Art. She oversees USF's Graphic Studio, Contemporary Art Museum, and Public Art Program. There's always changes on the campus, in the culture, in the city, nationally, internationally, and we try to be responsive to all of that and not think of ourselves in some little small, you know, town trying to, not that you can't make great art in small towns because that's happening all over the world at the moment, but Tampa is partly on the map in the arts because of Graphic Studio, because of a very, very strong MFA program in the School of Art and Art History, and for the caliber of exhibitions, which have always had an international aspect to them, or bringing leading artists to our students and to the broader community has always been my vision and my commitment. So what's the most exciting thing for you about what's happening in Tampa today? Well, I think it's all exciting. I am immersed in all of this all of the time. And, and people ask me, aren't you going to retire? And I said, well, I'm going to follow Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she says she's going to be on the Supreme Court if she can still function adequately until she's 90. So that's now my new aim. And I can't imagine doing anything else that is so engaging. I'm very, very excited about Christian Viveros Fonet because he has a different network. Noel Smith, who's our deputy director at the museum, has a long history with Latin American artists. It kind of opened up leading Cuban artists to us. So we're thinking a little bit strategically about our location and what can we uniquely bring to the Tampa Bay area that will connect with the community. Sarah Howard, curator of public art and social practice at USF has been involved in the university's creative culture for decades herself. She invites us on a private tour of the world-renowned Graphic Studio. Founded in 1968, the studio has invited over 100 emerging and established contemporary artists from around the world to produce more than 1,000 highly prized and widely collected limited edition print and sculpture multiples. I started working here as a student when I was in school here, helping, assisting with production. And then when I graduated from grad school, I hadn't planned on staying, but I got hired full time. So I spent about 15 years working with artists in the studio. And then about five years ago, we were expanding the public art program to include social engagement and socially engaged practice. When that opportunity arose, I moved out of production and now I manage the public art program and then expand our exhibition program to include socially engaged projects. So we're going to take a little walk through the studio yeah, let's itself. let's walk through the studio. 
We're entering into our very long hallway, which often, as needed, turns into our production space as well. Everything that is on the walls and on view, sculptural elements, has been produced here over the past 50 years. So we're walking down to our litho studio, which also kind of serves as a mixed media studio. We've got a number of works being produced in here currently, an addition with Fred Tomaselli, that's a archival pigment print, and I believe it's a 11 color screen print. We've got a image, a proof by Allison Elizabeth Taylor. We've been working on developing a project with her for a number of years to realize her work. She does a lot of marquetry, so we were looking at exploring that same sort of process in other materials, including marble. Marquetry is like an inlaid wood. It's used a lot in furniture, but you can also create a pictorial image using all the different sort of wood veneers and wood grains and tones and colors of wood. And so that's her practice. And when we started talking about doing this project, about expanding that into a different kind of material. So we were looking at marble. And, and sometimes when we do specialized processes like that, we will subcontract out with another a fabricator that does that specifically. Those are works by William Wegman. He's often known, obviously, for the photography he does of the Weimariner dogs, but he also has this really interesting painting practice where he expands off of these antique postcards, picturesque scenes, and he'll do these large-scale paintings that incorporate the postcards where he imagines what's happening outside of that postcard and draws them together. So when he came to work at Graphic Studio... We did a billboard project, so had public billboards up around the city of the Weimariners. He also did a couple of prints for us using these postcards from our local area, from Tampa. Behind here is a suite of 12 prints that are made by Vic Muniz, and they're silhouettes of people in different Karma Sutra positions, but the silhouettes, they're photogravures but they were made using love bugs. And so people in South Florida may be familiar with these bugs that we have here that they have a season and they copulate. So they fly around copulating and they're very slow. And when Vic was here, he was like, what are these bugs flying around everywhere? And he was like, oh my God, we have to do some prints of these bugs in the Karma Sutra positions. So it was a really fun project. We actually had to go out and collect the bugs. We froze them and then we placed them into these silhouette positions, photograph them, use those images to make photogravure plates. So there's this layering of processes that happens. Almost everything has some digital element at some point, whether we're correcting film or generating the film digitally for the print processes. But then we go back into these analog hand processes of wiping the plates, of pulling each print independently. So while we've obviously embrace digital technology for so many fabrication processes. We also are very reliant on the skills and talent of the printers to be able to do these really specific processes. Now we're going into our, so our curating area. This is where we finalize the works to prepare them for the market, to prepare the artists to sign the works, 
It's also where we keep all the print inventory. So it's in a humidity controlled environment. In our middle vault area here is where we do all our packing and shipping for sales that we're sending out work around the world. At the USF Contemporary Art Museum, curator-at-large Christian Viveros Fonet offers a tour of the visible turn contemporary artists confront political invisibility. Installations by New York-based artists Tavares Strachan, Carolina Sobeca, Jorge Takla, and Bosco Sodi articulate global issues of climate change, cultural destruction, and immigration that remain largely unresolved. I like the idea of people being able to walk into an institution and see work that connects into their daily life. That can be politics or not. Frankly, it can be culture at large. Bosco Sodi, he's here with us now, will be constructing or reconstructing and then disassembling Muro, his 1,060 brick wall in front of the museum starting in the morning, probably start assembling the thing around 6 in the morning. We'll probably be through assembling the thing sometime between 10 and 11, and sometime around 3 in the afternoon, this assembly will take place. Walls can be erected quite quickly as long as there is the will to erect them. They can, more importantly, be disassembled just as quickly, provided there is the collective will from Jericho to the Berlin Wall to the wall... uh, our president wants to erect on the southern border. These were all historical facts, and we're providing a metaphor that somehow or other tries to reflect all three and many more experiences of what walls do and what happens when you take them down. From Mexico, artist Bosco Sodi lives and works between New York and Oaxaca in Mexico. We sit down to learn more about the communal installation project he brings to the museum. You have started working, making bricks yourself yes. with people in Mexico? Yes. Is that the source of the materials for the Muro project? Yes. The way I, I approach art, that is first the process, and then the outcome will come by itself. And working with clay, that's really a ritual, spiritual Completely. practice. I mean, you're working with the four elements, no? What sparked the project that you are producing here. I just finished a pavilion of uh, 64 cubes of two meters by two meters by two meters made with these bricks. I designed these bricks to make this, to make those pavilions. And one day we were stocking them at the studio. We were bringing them from the Craftsman uh, Studios to my studio. And all the Craftsmen, we were like 10 Craftsmen or something like that, they stocked them as a wall. But just naturally, because it was the most convenient way of stocking the, the bricks. Normally, when we finish working, I share a beer with them, or a glass of mezcal. And we were talking, and they begin to tell me all of them their stories about their being illegal immigrants, mostly all of them. Then uh, some of the young ones, they were telling me their, their dream to go test luck in, in the United States. And it was exactly after Trump got elected. So, I mean, this I call it the, like the... Super Trump record, like a momentary lap of reason, and I, I came with the idea of doing this public performance uh, piece. And I came with my gallery in New York, with Casmin Gallery, and, and I told them, why don't we do it in Washington Square Park? That is like the park of freedom in where all the demonstrations are. 
obviously was based on the on a political fact that was the wall of Trump. But then after doing it in, in Washington Square Park and see so many kids coming that they have a completely different interpretation because walls is not just political or not, it's not just a concept of, of Mr. Trump. It's a, also a concept of gender, of uh, race, or of economics. So I think it become much more like as a social exercise to realize how ephemeros is a wall, any kind of wall. How can you build a wall in two hours, but then dismantle the wall in one hour? And how, when society gets together, they have the force of dismantle any kind of wall. The next day, in front of the museum, we capture the moment when El Muro begins to come down. Bosco Sodi is here to welcome the crowd. So choose the one you like and take it home and just keep it for you to remind you how ephemeral uh, a wall is and how easy it is to dismantle a wall whenever society gets together. So I'm going to take the first one and then you can choose any one you want. A few steps from the museum, I catch up with Jake Troyley inside the graduate studios where he's preparing work for his master's thesis show at USF. Troyley funded his undergraduate studies in art with a full basketball scholarship. Hi, Jake Troyley. Welcome to my studio. Thank you. I pretty typically work with myself as my subject here and then in all of these paintings. I think about compartmentalization and again sort of the simultaneity of the self existing in several spaces at once and which of those roles are performance and which are sort of closer to true self-identity and what is self-identity. Thinking about identity as like a commodity and something that we're taught and race and culture being similar things. I see this one straight ahead as mm -hmm. you've got uh, tall hair and it looks like a tree with birds yeah. living in, in your hair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have utilized, like I utilize my hair a lot in my work. I'm thinking about like this hyper afro that I give myself or like this really sort of tall, flat top. Arrangement. Have you been able to achieve that in real life? Oh no, like my, my hair, it, it, that's so perfect. I wish. He's sweating. Mm -hmm. All of these in this. Everyone's sweating. Are sweating. And, and I, I think the reason for that is I'm thinking about performance. I'm thinking about performance anxiety and this idea of, of being in this situation that may seem like it's totally innocuous, but having this sort of internal gear up for this performance. I used to have performance anxiety really, really badly in a very physical way, less conceptually than in these works, but like before my basketball games, I'd always throw up. Like my stomach would be a wreck, like I'd have this anxiety. And I found it's very similar to when you're moving into a new space and you know that you're gonna have to do that performance again, right? Like this sort of like, this is the person that I'm trying to embody in this moment. And, and so I, I wanted to play with this idea of the sweat and this figure that seems very poised and in this very classical sort of scenario, but is dripping perspiration in anticipation of the performance. This is a sort of a strange persona of mine. It's a self-portrait in this very abstracted, cartoony way. And I want to create these very bright, poppy, bold landscapes and places and scenes that as the viewer starts to investigate, they start to get into some of the, the more serious subject matter. Okay, the only thing you're wearing in this painting is a hat. Mm -hmm. Cowboy hat, full nude other than the cowboy hat. And actually in all the other paintings in the series, it's, it's the same thing. I, I like this idea of my figures 
being nude, uh, I think that what it does is plays with this idea of agency and control, and it puts them in this very vulnerable situation. I'm thinking of performance, and I think specifically about race as performance, and at what point is the performance over? Is it ever over? Who are you performing for, and why? So every single one of these paintings has been sort of different. Like the first one was a museum scene, the second was just like this, like a live TV recording, like they were like applause signs and things like that. And this one I was thinking about these unattainable standards or like these mythologized cliches. And I was just thinking specifically about the cowboy and this idea of like the hyper-masculine, brave explorer <laughs> and sort of uh, contradictions within the history of the cowboy and like what this means and how this has become this American symbol. For me, it was just playing into this idea of performance and like trying to be this thing that in reality is this unattainable pinnacle of this like faux masculinity. In what was once a bank building, Liz Demet welcomes us to the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts. The art collector and independent curator organized the exhibition Lost and Found in America to spotlight the work of Sadie Barnett, Genevieve Gagnard, and Caleb Lindsay. For me, my draw to them was they're talking about the political situation today and the contemporary American experience today in such a smart, fascinating, and personal way. They either use their own image or their own experience or their own memories and family memories and documents to really talk about identity and otherness and race and politics. I think Sadie Barnett says it well when she says, the personal is political. Caleb also creates his own family tree in his characters, in the characters that he represents in photography and video and performance. It's quite a good combination you created here. You know, Caleb is just incredible to me, and the family tree that he creates and all the characters and how they interrelate and how he plays them all or dubs the voices for all of them is really fascinating, but also for me it's that high-low culture. It's so conceptually smart, but then again, the culture of soap operas and over-dramatization and drag show reviews. Is Telenovela. All, yeah, it's very much incorporated in there, and I think that's how a lot of people experience culture or learn about success and drama, the American dream. You get it from these sort of fake Hollywood-type versions, soap operas that he used to watch when he was younger with his grandmother, and then try to figure out how you fit into them. And he's made it so he and his, quote, family really fit into that dream. She what? He's what? That bitch. I am sorry, Hope, but you know how he was. You knew what we what were. I want you Kay, to Kay. do is distract You are my cousin. I don't care what she you have to do. I'll pay what I promised. The price is definitely right. I'm very interested in the role that you play here, of course, uh, curating this show, and bringing the Yoyo Kusama to the Tampa Museum of Art in your work with local collectors and advocates for art. This is Tampa's renaissance right now. It's really happening, and I think some really influential and smart people have really embraced the idea of 
art and culture as a driver of communities and excellence and economics and have chosen to really invest in those areas, wanting to bring the best of the best here to Tampa Bay. And Tampa Bay is lucky because we have wonderful art institutions already, and we have wonderful universities already. So we have the structure and the foundation in place, and it's now has the momentum behind it. I know that you're also involved as a consultant with the Water Street development. A liminal space in Tampa is becoming a culture space. And I think Water Street Tampa has been very smart in considering that they'll make the framework for that and probably invest in some seminal artworks, but also the framework for things to change and evolve in the future and really make some places for art happenings and different kinds of events. So I think Tampa really is, and there's other developers doing interesting projects that will also have cultural and art components. And I think it's an interesting way for people just to experience art and installation in their daily lives. One day during our residency, Sarah Howard invites us to Venus. That's the name of a new artist studio and event space initiated and facilitated by the St. Petersburg Women's Collective. We meet artists Carrie Boucher, Mitzi Gordon, and Bridget Elmer. Hi, I'm Mitzi Gordon. My background's <laughs> in journalism. From that stems a lot of my choices creatively. I started as a writer and a reader, and I still work in that capacity. I created Bluebird Books Bus, my bookmobile, in 2011. Originally, I wanted to just be able to share more books with people, and then it it grew into this uh, intersection of books and art, and and I I learned what a social practice project was in the process of experiencing the transformation of what started for me as just like a personal passion art project. Hi, I'm Bridget Elmer. I am an artist and organizer and mother. I've got my son Henry here with us today. And uh, I work down at the Ringling College of Art and Design full-time as the coordinator of the Letterpress and Book Arts Center down there. I also own Prince St. Pete Community Letterpress. I co-own it um, with Caitlin Crockett, who's another artist and letterpress printer. So that's a community-accessible printmaking space um, right on the border of St. Pete and Gulfport. And then the work that I do with these incredible people has come out of all of us having our own individual practices, finding each other, and starting to collaborate. And I'm Carrie Boucher. I have a background in visual art and I transitioned into socially engaged art about five years ago. I was a, a metalsmith happily working in my studio and I started seeing this disparity in access to art education and people's connection or disconnection to the art world. I feel like over the many, many years that the art market has been involved in the art world, people have been left out of the creative process. People think you're either a creator or a buyer or consumer, and if you don't necessarily fit within that, then you don't have a place in the creative world, and I don't believe that. So I go out into the community and try to get people back in touch with their creativity. And there's many, many different communities throughout the county that need to be served in different ways. I was on the selection committee, as were some other curators and people representing various communities. Spacecraft was awarded the grant. It felt like a really natural 
next step for all of us. We wanted to make sure we had themes that would appeal to as broad a cross-section of the folks in Pinellas County as possible. So that's how we came up with the four themes, make, play, read, and grow. Spacecraft is social practice activating creative environments. And we are crafting these spaces. So that's where the, the name spacecraft came from. And what we say is space is the medium that we're using. So we're filling these spaces with active engagements with the public. Having programming for any human of any age is our desire. It's all about getting people to tap into their innate creativity. And it's a located programming too. So that's the other thing that I love about the idea. We have like a foundation of programming ideas and providers, but we're going to be surveying at every location when we hit the ground and find out what that given community envisions and wants. So we're really excited about sort of having this framework where we know we're going to be able to provide some great opportunities and experiences for of an array of people, but also having the openness and a structure for facilitating like a localized programming that really serves the needs of all of these different communities. And on that, what we would love to happen is that when spacecraft leaves a community, for the community to look at itself and each other and say, well, we don't need shipping containers in our community to have creative programming happening because we do want to engage people in the community to to be co-creatives in this once we leave they're still there and this programming can continue when we're not there so that's part of what we want to do is have them see themselves as creative one of the elements of the project is that we hope to network these spaces and really bridge these distances so that areas in a community of poverty and an area an affluent area might have two of the containers at the same time and they would be networked and people would be able to communicate back and forth between those areas and start to see other communities as their neighbors and the creativity that's coming out of that other community that they often see as other inspiring them and giving them a connection an emotional connection to a community that they might never ever drive into or visit I feel like ultimately what we want people to see is that every human is creative and everybody has an expression of that creativity. You know, I think it's going to create these organic partnerships or opportunities for these partnerships that you don't even know what they're going to be, but people are going to be able to connect that may not look like art to them and that's okay, you know, and, and that they're going to make connections that I think will grow and amplify for years to come. Our contemporary culture search leads us back to Seminole Heights, where we meet artist-entrepreneur Becky Flanders. She shows us around East Wild, a rambling set of warehouse spaces fronting railroad tracks in active use. Originally a lumber yard and a hardware store, the buildings have since housed artists' studios, a rave space, and a church. So we're in the front of the property. It's a 37,000 square foot warehouse on almost three acres of industrial property. So it's a rambling space. Right now we're in my studio, which is the front corner space, which was originally 
the front of the hardware store, like the shop, the cash register would be over here and whatnot. In the back, there's a space that's about 5,000 square feet that has been art studios for a long time. So I've Very put cool. a number of other art studios into the place and uh, other fabrication shops. So everybody here is making something. They're either making something as a business, fabricating, in some cases, furniture, um, in other cases, themed environments, and in some cases, they're individual artists. The, uh, the train is coming. Yeah, it's still a freight line. And we're still in Seminole Heights, correct? We are. We are still in Seminole Heights, which I call, like, the Brooklyn of Tampa. It was kind of seedy for a while, considered to be dangerous, and it's been gentrifying for a time. It was where the intelligentsia artists, the outsider community lived for a long time because there were affordable, cool houses, and now it's been on the up for a while. <laughs> so we're walking around East Wild, uh, and it goes on for quite a ways. Yeah, it's almost three acres. This is part of Grand Theming Studios here, formerly Jason Hallfish Studios. They do themed environments. They make big crazy things like they look like they're for amusement parks, although their clients are often private. They have a whole bunch of huge CNC machines and I think they're they're running them 24 hours to produce stuff for clients all over the world. This here is Carl Kelly's space. He makes pastels and paints. You see the trays of them drying in the sun. This is like almost like ancient process stuff here. He barely uses any electricity and he collects rainwater from the roof and uses it to make these pastels. They're like super high-end chalk pastels. I have a tenant who's been here for decades. He's kind of like a junk man. We have an ecosystem here where we sort of recycle things and reuse things and so his space is the repository for all of the, the the things and the junk so you can see over here this is the railroad loading platform from when it was a lumber yard in the 50s they got all of their product on the rail line so there's several different art studios in here and one band practice space. I also have someone who's been looking to do an aquaponics farm back here, which I'm all about, you know, multi-utilization of the space, urban farming. When transmedia artist Noelle Mason and her housemates began inviting artists to transform their garage and barn into performance and installation space, they created a destination for contemporary art. We have a gallery space in our garage, which is called Parallelogram Gallery. As I was doing the drywall, I realized that whoever built the garage built it at a slight angle, and so it's actually slightly parallelogram shaped, which is how it got its name. In addition to that, I'm also part of a collective called Kunsthaus that runs a storefront space in downtown Tampa. And so between the two, I have a, it's a semi-busy curatorial practice uh, that goes along with my own artwork and teaching. And you said that you live in this house with other artists? There's five artists that live here, including myself. It functions as both our residence and oftentimes studio space. 
depending on the project that's going on. <laughs> so we're right now sitting on the back terrace, a screened porch, and we see this wild garden out behind us and the garage just steps from here. Who are you inviting into this garage gallery? We have a combination of things. It has, at times, functioned as a annex to the university gallery. For a while, there wasn't a student gallery at a university because it was being remodeled. Many of the exhibitions that would have taken place there got relocated. But smaller exhibitions that maybe were put on by a class didn't have a place to go. And so we offered our space to those classes. And it was fun because it provided them also alternative spaces like you'll see we have a barn behind us which has functioned as a video space and installation space and for a while we had a jacuzzi which people actually turned the jacuzzi into a performance space both with water in it and without water in it. We've had guest curators curate in the space. Dylan Langwell from Richmond, Virginia did a show with artists from all over the east coast. We've had some former friends from Skowhegan and grad school with me do exhibitions in the space, former grad students, people in the community. One of the things about Tampa is there are unfortunately more artists than there are spaces to show and so it feels like a much needed place for people to just try out things that are, might even be more experimental because they don't have the pressure of it being in a commercial gallery or a museum space. The other garage gallery that is in the neighborhood belongs to a guy named Jason Lazarus, who I knew from Chicago. And I think one of the things about the Chicago art scene is that the apartment slash independent gallery space is a huge part of that scene. And so both of us coming from Chicago, it felt like here we have a place in Tampa where rents are cheap, space is widely available. We were hoping to bring that idea of self-started spaces here. I think our first show was like January of 2016. And what's the neighborhood's response to this animation, uh. <laughs> activation of uh, a garage in their neighborhood? Fortunately, our immediate neighbors are relatively okay with it. <laughs> I would say some of the rest of the neighborhood is not happy about the cars parked in front of their houses all the time because it's not a very wide street. We've had to try to negotiate parking elsewhere. I would say the, the general response is bewilderment. <laughs> Inside the garage gallery known as Quaid, current members Jen Ryan Miller, Gary Schmidt, and Neil Bender introduce me to their collective. Let's describe this setting here. We are in Seminole Heights. We're in a garage behind a... A head shop. When we give people directions, we say we're in the alleyway behind the smoke shop. We're lucky to be here, really, because the Heights area is, is so popular right now, and, and all the restaurants and bars that are moving in, it's potentially super expensive, but we found this perfect little pocket behind these storefronts that is, is just kind of perfectly hidden and operates almost like a speakeasy or something as far as art galleries go. We're really lucky that the landlord wanted an art space in this particular building. So when one of the Quaid members contacted him about this space, he was really interested in having a gallery here. This was originally Tempest Projects. And then it became a construction office and then was something else. So the landlord was really excited to bring art back into this space and 
in Seminole Heights in general. Well, what's your vision for Quaid? One of the really interesting things about Quaid Gallery in general is that the members have the opportunity to either exhibit their own work or curate shows into the space. Each of us have a month where we can do whatever we want with the space. So we're really always acting as both curators and artists. One of the things I think that Gary's done a lot is we've had a lot of literary readings here recently. We've had three literature readings that first year of Quaid. One was during a big conference, AWP, and, and we're just getting a whole different scene here at Quaid for those. A lot of people from St. Pete and, and the whole Bay Area, so that's really cool. And now Warren, who teaches at UT, is, runs a film festival. So there's going to be events here in a couple weeks related to FlexFest. It's the Florida Experimental Film and Video Festival. You have to be resourceful. That energy is actually very exciting, I think. In a way, it reminds me a lot of what was happening in like Bushwick and stuff, where people were opening spaces in their own private spaces to have shows. So I think that's created a good kind of kinetic energy in the community here. The Quaid Gang connects me to their newest member, filmmaker and curator Warren Cockerham. We catch up by phone a few weeks after Cockerham has achieved Tampa's first experimental film and video showcase. What is Flex? Flex is similar to other festivals out there that foster avant-garde, experimental, underground films that don't have really distribution that are more or less made by one person or a small group of people. So artist-made films and video and expanded cinema, but something that an audience would have to be immersed in a time-based medium that might have multiple projections and a performance element, something that you can't, you know, witness on your phone that you'd have to be there in person. (laughs) I guess what Flakes aims to do is to showcase work that isn't seen basically regionally down in the Southeast, but at the same time provide a a network for makers internationally to share their work with this audience. And what's interesting about Flex is we're all volunteer run. I love the descriptive of the festival from basements to biennials. Tell me what that means to you. It's both, I guess what you'd call sort of more of an alternative venue but also some of those folks are also, you know, participating in what we'd call high art venues. One of our jurors, Nazli Dinsel, Turkish-born filmmaker who's in Milwaukee, for instance, had a screening at the Museum of Modern Art about a month and a half before she came here. And then Film Lab, out of a building she, she just recently purchased in Milwaukee, in which they do like process film in the basement. And, you know, she's giving, <laughs> giving an opportunity to people that are just starting out. I would love to know what happened at this first iteration in Tampa. Mm. Tell me what unfolded. We had 14 programs scheduled. Each one runs between 80 and 85 minutes. Really, every day we packed up the video projector, which is quite large, 16 millimeter, in some cases the sound, some cases staging and chairs, all that, just basically two or three people put in the back of an old pickup truck and moved it to the next venue and set up there. Thursday night, we were at our house. My partner and I rent a two-acre lot of land, basically, uh, that's just across the river from Seminole Heights. We held two programs there where 100 people were in attendance for one of them and about 75 for another. That was exciting. 
that made it really unique, this sort of outdoor experience. But we also partnered with some some other organizations like Quaid Gallery, like Kunsthaus. So the community really pulled pulled things together. What made Flex stand out from other film festivals? We had an all-female jury this year. We, I, can't, I didn't really think about it going into it, but kept getting like complimented on that. Kristen Reeves is one of the filmmakers who presented at Flex. One thing that Kristen does a lot in her practice is uses educational films and reworks educational films. Oftentimes, that's sex education films. During Flux, Saturday night, we had a, a late night event at Coop's house. It was outdoors behind Tempest Projects. And Kristen set up her nine projector uh, piece called What is Nothing? After What is Nothing? When you hear the gong strike once, you will open your eyes. At that time, you will look about and quickly observe your surroundings. Ready? What is nothing? What is nothing? Nothing is a word. Nothing. No thing, no significance. That thing which has no. What's that? Nothing, can't you see? Nothing is something you can see. What's that? More nothing. But it's a different kind of nothing. I always thought nothing was just nothing. Me too. So it's nine 16 millimeter projectors where she uses found educational films and she's used a, a laser to reanimate on top of the film. So basically etching out parts of the film with a laser directly onto the celluloid. So these 16 millimeter celluloid films are cut into loops and then she loads these loops onto the projectors and changes the loops out as the show is running. So what the audience sees is a composite of nine images that kind of bleed into each other. She does this for about 10 minutes, and then she'll switch the loops out and kind of reconfigures a new meaning with each performance. Jatovia Gary is working on a project, I think, over time called Giverny. That program was curated by uh, one of our jurors, Amudina Escobar-Lopez, who is a curator and researcher who is currently in Rochester, New York, and she's working on her PhD from the University of Rochester. She also has an archivist degree, she had a film archiving degree that she got at the Eastman House. So she's like a film preservationist uh, researcher, curator. She's from Spain. A lot of her research is uh, underrepresented cultures. I asked her to put the program together as sort of a critique of what's missing over the history of the festival. That's what these pieces were chosen for, and Jatovia Gary's was one of the films. Um, so it was an interesting conversation since we also had some of the Flex founders in the audience. So we had this discussion about representation and canonizing things and what's available and what gets represented. And that piece in particular, she chose, she said so in the Q&A, that it uses more of the language of the canon of experimental film. My boyfriend just went like that. Keep your hands where they are, please. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please just don't tell me that he's gone. 
So in that case, it reaches to audience members that are familiar, I guess, with avant-garde and experimental film, but also offers these new signifiers, uh, this new kind of language that borders on performance art and borders in, I guess we call new ethnography, self-ethnography, something that's not shot by uh, a white Western man. What would you like to see happen next for Flex? I personally have a lot of investment and interest and uh, background in community education. I look at places like uh, the Echo Park Film Center out in Los Angeles and basement films out in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. These Chicago filmmakers, these kinds of places that are not only programming films, but also teaching community workshops. Another one of our goals is to have regular year-round programming and to offer venues for touring artists. There will be an invitational, a flex invitational uh, February of uh, 2020. That's just in its infancy right now. So do a lot of work uh, over the summer this year, putting, putting that program together. Down the street from Quaid, we venture into the private home behind the showroom and atelier of Live Work Studio. Co-founder Devin Brady has lived in Tampa all his life. His partner, Janina Awai, grew up in Trinidad. When they're not producing furniture and designing bars and restaurants, they're creating public art. They're now realizing a commission for the city of Sulphur Springs. The title is Echo Quilt. Mm -hmm. Right. The title referencing a patchwork of stories being brought together by this project. Is this meant to be a permanent public art piece? Yes, at Man Wagnon Park in Sulphur Springs, which is where this whole thing was designed to take place. And the, the neighborhood of Sulphur Springs is where the idea came from in terms of collecting these stories because it's always been kind of a struggling community a sort of transient community, so there's not a real strong sense of history there of the residents. Even though there, there are some people that have been there for 40 or 50 years that can tell you all kinds of stories of the area, their neighbors might not know any of that. So it's kind of trying to draw those stories out and collect them, be able to disseminate them. Nobody really knows in that neighborhood that this is a park that they can all go and enjoy, and it's just a beautiful place to be. So that's kind of the idea. And that part of the Hillsborough River is much narrower. It gets to this point where it's really idyllic and quiet at times. You can see manatee swimming. You can see alligators. Being on that part of the river really makes you appreciate the natural environment that little spot in this neighborhood that's overlooked all the time. And Sulphur Springs has a rich history that some people knew about. That spot in particular at Man Wagner Park was the northern end of the line for Nebraska Avenue. And it was also a place where people from downtown Tampa 
back in the early 1900s would travel to for a vacation. It took a while to get there. It, the Manns and the Wagnon families had a fish camp there. And when the last of that family deeded it to the city and the county. And so it's been sort of like a nebulous little location, a little unknown gem. We really wanted to elevate the beauty of that park. The project that we envisioned was kind of a storytelling. The user interacts with this phone-based system that's a, a an audio recording and playback mechanism. So they can listen to stories that were recorded at that location. They can listen to stories that were recorded at other locations. They can record their own stories, and they can go through this whole archive through this telephone-based interface that's there as part of the project, and it's also part of the mobile unit. The mobile unit is kind of a, a horn that sort of envelops you and hopefully gives you a sense of safety and isolation to sort of tell your private story into this recording device. When you open that door, it is a phone? There's an actual telephone in there. Yeah. You pick it up, and it immediately you'll hear a recording. It goes through a phone tree system, so then you have choices. Press one to listen to a story from this location, and press three to record your own story. And the idea is to invite the neighbor, the community, to tell their own stories. Right. It's a way for a community to be able to record and store these stories, but also be able to share them. The Hillsborough River runs through my memories of her. From her river house on Hollywood Street, we used to get drunk and fall in. I would steal canoes from my neighbor in Sulphur Springs and sneak over to her house under the cover of darkness. We'd paddle to the water tower and dream up ways to scale its facade. Tempest Projects burns bright in Tampa's cultural constellation, managing to illuminate even the rainy Sunday morning when I meet the organization's energizers, programming director Tracy Medulla and board member Sarah Howard. I've been wondering about the name of their art space and what their honeycomb logo means. Tempest Fuchit came to mind. It made sense that it was, it was based on time. It was the right time for the project. It was the right time for a new start. And it doesn't limit us to just visual arts exhibitions. And I like the logo thinking of the creative hive. That honeycomb design came from Kurt Piazza, who was a real driving force behind Tempest when we started. It continues to grow and produce and generate. That you know, shape can be repeated and evolve. As we became a little more involved, we started working collaboratively with other collectives in the community and for me that's the best part of the job. We are a nonprofit. We're all a volunteer board and volunteer staff. So I like to focus on the things that are not only valuable for the community but that we enjoy doing. Most of us enjoy collaborating. We like working together. We like highlighting each other's successes and problem solving together. So for me on like a very basic level it's the most enjoyable way to do the job, which is to like reach out to like-minded people, but also like-minded people that have different strengths so that we can really make a difference together. You are both 
living and Tempest projects is situated in a neighborhood called Seminole Heights. Let's talk about the significance of where Tempest Projects is situated. It's a neighborhood that was built in the 20s, a lot of bungalow homes, kind of working class neighborhood. Close to downtown, close to Ybor City. And I've also always noticed that, at least growing up in Tampa, there were so many USF faculty members and all the artists and musicians that I knew all lived in Sonal Heights. So it's always been, I think, uh, there's been a gravitational pull for those that um, like the flavor of our neighborhood. What do you see as the future role of Tempest? Do you have a vision for how it could evolve? I think we'd like to continue to expand our network of artists that we work with. We'd like to expand our education program. We've got a a collective coming in for the next residency that's really interested in engaging with the community. And I think those kinds of partnerships are really fruitful and address some of like the social issues that we're facing. We're almost 10 years old now. In the next year, I would like to perfect the things that we're doing and reach further. I like the idea of being able to bring more people to Tampa and share those connections with our artists from Tampa so that they can have more collaborative options. Tampa is growing younger and more welcoming to emerging artists every day. Artist-driven spaces in Tampa are delivering international programming that addresses local concerns. Spaces like Tempest Projects and garage galleries like Quaid work as complementary venues alongside the emerging film festival Flex and socially engaged programs generated by creatives at the University of South Florida. The striking element of Tampa's art scene is the blurred line between the DIY and institutional across its sprawling cultural network. Visit freshartinternational.com to explore other conversations we've captured in Florida. This program is supported in part by Tempest Projects. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review Fresh Art International anywhere you go for podcasts. With your support, we've been sharing these stories since 2011. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, Tempest Projects, and Artists in Residence in Everglades are among those supporting this podcast. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button to give what you can to boost our work. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.